0: .NET Rocks episode 806 with guest Dr. Ingve Falk Eater. Recorded live Friday, September 14th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at
1: gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome to to.NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. We are on the road heading to Chicago this weekend. Man, we're having a good time. At least I think we are.
0: I'm sure we will. The magic of time shifting makes all of this more complex. But- we're
1: actually recording this before we head out on the road trip, but, you know, I know we're having a good time.
0: Well, we've done this before, and we're pretty good at it, and uh, for whatever reason, we seem to be able to put up with each other in close proximity.
1: Yeah, I don't know why. I think we're in denial, basically, <laughs> Must what it is. be, uh- We're really good at denial. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Richard, let's uh, get rolling here with Better Know Framework. All right. <laughs> What do you got this time, my friend? Well, everybody loves link to XML. It's nothing new. Yes, one of my favorite things about link. Right, and we love link to XML because it is not all the other XML technologies that we use to parse XML before.
0: Do not say XSLT; you'll make me. Cry. I was
1: trying not to say XSLT, <laughs> and I won't. I promise I will not say XSLT. Okay.
0: <sighs> I had a problem. I was trying to solve with XSLT. Now I have, now two, I have problems. two problems.
1: <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, XML is wonderful. And, you know, it it seems to be like we don't talk about XML all that much because, you know, maybe we use it a little bit here and there and stuff. And, and it's great and it's wonderful. But there is actually a markup language that is based on XML Mm -hmm. that we use all the time. Really? You want to venture a guess? How about HTML? HTML. Uh That's right. So what if you could use link to XML? to parse HTML. And now you're just talking crazy talk, Mr.
0: Franklin. Everybody knows that HTML is not well-formed.
1: Well, sometimes it is. Oh. Most of the time it is. Well, I can't say most of the time. In my world, most of the time it is, because I write it by hand. Nice. All right. Well, anyway, uh, if you go to tinyurl.com slash link to HTML, and that's L-I-N-Q-T-O-H-T-M-L, you will see a, not a new post, but a post from Beth Massey from april two thousand eight telling you and showing you how to query h t m. l with link to x m l wow, cool isn't that cool? Yeah. I mean you know that's just one of those duh moments why wouldn't you that you know there's all these uh libraries out there for parsing h t m. l. and you know uh pages and screen scraping and all that yeah. stuff. And nobody likes to do that.
0: No, that's what I was thinking. This beats the hell out of screen scraping.
1: Uh, how about writing HTML? Mm-hmm. She shows you right there in that in that link. Dim HTML equals, and then you know, in granted, it's in VB right. because VB has XML literals, which makes a link to XML so so tasty fine. Mm. <laughs> but um, but there you go. I mean, you can you can write it, you can read it, and it's easy. Nice. The only problem, as Richard points out, is when the HTML is malformed, right? Yeah.
0: Well, and and the XHTML standard that that we tried for so long to use just didn't stick. You know, it, it's got some people love it, some people don't. It's just not a entirely reliable thing. But you know, this would be my default tactic when I needed to get stuff out of a web page before I went to a classic screenscaping or or straight text parsing solution.
1: Well, and that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's there. It's easy. Try it, and if it works, great. And if it does, you know, you know. If it doesn't, then there are other options. Uh, Mr.
0: Franklin, you never fail to impress. Thank well, you for you that. Well,
1: you know, we can thank Beth Massey for her ingenuity. Absolutely. Because you know. that's that's really a great application of a of a technology that you didn't quite think of as being what it's for. Yeah. Yeah, and didn't think of that at all. And yep. I'm hoping we're going to have Beth on the road trip. Oh, yeah. That would be great. Yeah, for sure. All right, Mr. Campbell, who's talking
0: to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 795, which is the one we did with Chris Jackson, Talking about application compatibility. I think you enjoyed that show. That was a great show. It's good fun. He's he's an interesting cat. He talks about a lot of different stuff. And this is a comment from Nathan Pledger. I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to have to go down a couple of different paths on this. Uh, Nathan says, "Uh, great show as always. Seems Carl has highlighted why Kendo UI Mobile is half a solution but in a different way. I remember tweeting to Carl and Todd Anglin and a couple of others at Telerik why they provide a complete mobile solution but exclude WinPhone 7. While I totally appreciate their reasons, WinPhone 7 does not provide the same HTML5 features that are needed. I believe some functionality should be provided. That way developers don't have to develop two different faces to address the mobile market. And Carl highlighted that this is evident in the desktop mobile demos not working in anything other than WebKit surely the answer for Telluric is to live up to their making things easier for developers philosophy and apply the shims that Chris himself talks about all right Nathan that's a few things first off shims really only apply to desktop apps so all of this HTML stuff like there's just no way that's gonna work that's not what a shims are for uh, I think think that their big problem with the win phone 7 scenario is because microsoft knew win phone 8 was coming they didn't bother with an upgrade to phone 7 to bring in the functionality that uh, ultimately would have been needed that's all going to be in phone 8 when it gets ie 10 and all
1: that stuff is there yeah i'm hoping that um that kendo ui gets updated to to take advantage of win phone 8 uh, I personally am not apologizing for it because it, it's frustrating to me. Sure. But um, I, I think a lot of it also has to do with the way, you know, the look and feel of the Windows phone is, and that uh, you can kind of get away with an application looking like uh, an iPhone application on Android or an Android on the iPhone. On Windows Phone 7, they look very different. Radically different. Radically different. Yeah. Uh
0: and the other thing I would suggest is you go take a look at Telerik's new Icinium uh, yeah. beta project because that uh, involves PhoneGap which works on all of the platforms and still uses uh Kendo UI under the hood.
1: So. Now can we spell Icinium because that's one of those words that could be spelled a bunch of different ways depending on how the style of the uh, the Zeitgeist uh is hitting Telerik that day.
0: It's I C E N-I-U-M, and I will of course include the link to the show notes. So I do believe there are solutions to this problem. Uh, and I appreciate you know where Nathan was going with that, that it's an you know interesting solution. You know, you can't call it a complete solution if you're not including there's a whole bunch of other products out there too. There's still a lot of blackberries in the world. So Mm. it is a a challenge to cover it all. And phone seven is still a small chunk of the market. Phone eight changes this again, so it's gonna be interesting to see how all that grows. But I think the big point there was the shims that Chris was talking about in the show were specifically for Windows apps, and they really don't do the same thing uh, on the browser side. But I don't have to agree with you to send you a mug. So Nathan, a mug is on its way to you. And if you would like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the show at .NET Rocks.com.
1: And before we go any further... I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 300 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, 12 to 15 new courses every month. They're offering a free 10-day trial with 200 minutes of access. A wide range of courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, everything and anything Microsoft, .NET, SQL Server, you name it, including several courses on .NET internals and advanced debugging techniques. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, sir, let me introduce our guest. And this is a kind of an interesting show. And uh, I will let... Uh, Dr. Falk Eder tell us what uh, and how we got together, but uh, let me just introduce Dr. Ingve Falk Eater. Dr. Falk Eater is the Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University and Chief Division of Gastroenterology at the Louis Stokes Virginia Medical Center, Cleveland. His research interest focuses on clinical trials as well as research methodology and evidence translation. He's previously held appointments as Associate Director of the German Cochrane Center and Institute for Biostatistics at the University of Freiburg, Germany, teaching systematic review methodology. He is a frequent speaker on evidence-based medicine topics and has served as guideline methodologist to various organizations such as the U.S. and European Centers for Disease Prevention and Control, which is the CDC and ECDC the World Health Organization, and Medical Societies. In his spare time, he listens to .NET Rocks, Run As Radio, and Hansel Minutes to better understand the world of software development. lives with his wife and children in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Welcome, Dr. Falk
2: Thanks for having me. It's well, a blast. It's just an honor to be on that show. You have been listening to this for such a long time. And uh, so now I have a chance to pick your brain.
1: Well, tell me. What is somebody who obviously has a really important job doing talking with a couple of bums like us?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it all started out that, you know, you you work and you're exposed to all the technology and, and, and then you're starting to see this disconnect, right? I mean, now we have iPads, we have iPhones, you know, we have great user interfaces and then you go to work and... To sit at these screens with this, you know, battleship gray user interface. And you ask yourself, you know, where's this going? Uh, and, and so I was saying, I need to listen to this. I need to really understand this better. And so I was looking on the web and it didn't take too long to find your show. And, and you know, I haven't left since then. And every time I run, you know, I just uh, get my iPhone and, and I run that, uh, run a radio with Hotnet Rocks, you know, a handful of minutes and just try to figure out how this works nowadays.
0: Now, why do you care about software so much? You're a doctor. This, 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 you've got to have other <laughs> that's, problems.
2: <laughs> that's right. And, and obviously, you might be surprised, you know, to to have listeners like me on your show. And, and maybe I'm the first one, you know, being identified to, you know, Steve Smith, who has uh, actually helped us quite a bit here with uh, a lot of projects, or just starting to, actually. But uh, so, so here's the thing. Uh, you know, it was very interesting when I listened to your show in- initially, and there was this one moment, I can't really uh, pinpoint the show, it's, it's a while back, it's like a few years back, but one of your your uh, experts on the show, I think, said, you know, the worst people to work with are doctors. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was thinking, oh my God, they're, you know, they're really straightforward. And, and then I was th- sitting back and saying, well, you know, probably they're right, because you know, if you look at the evolution, I, I think there's a huge push, particularly in the United States, for electronic medical records and so on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, we are really backwards. We're still not there. We have just barely scratched the surface. There's been some organizations that have started this very early on. You know, the, the VA Medical Center, the Veterans Medical Center, where I'm working, is it, probably one of the prototypical organizations that have started very early on to do a medical record. Uh, actually, so early... <laughs> that you know the technology they have used, um, uh, you know, mumps. <laughs> right. Wow, it was, de- it was developed, you know, in the animal lab at Massachusetts General Hospital. Yeah, and that's
1: right. Mumps was a medical software uh, language, it, it, right?
2: And it, it was very early on. There were no relational databases, and I tried to understand that system, and I was trying to read some of that code, or, or to just to to grapple with it. And I, I you know, I was saying. This can't be true. Why are we going that direction? Until I, of course, realize that this was a lot of work end into this. And and before I criticize the system, I must say, obviously, that this is one of the most uh, advanced systems out there because, you know, the, the VA, the veteran system in the United States, is very large, one of the largest medical communities. And if a veteran goes, you know, to San Diego, to the VA Medical Center... And I want to see the presentation here. I can pull up his record and I can see all that information here. So from that perspective, it is revolutionary. It is great that we have this integration. But on the other hand, it's now over 20 years old and it's just showing. And to refactor this type of system, is going be extremely difficult. So... What many physicians have been doing is, is you know, they're, they're firing up their Excel spreadsheets or they're creating some access database to track their patients or to make sure that they don't forget things, right? Right. And that is probably not a good idea. And, you know, I, I did that. You know, I, you know, it was about seven years ago. We, we had this real need that we were sending all these patients out for endoscopies to other hospitals because we didn't have enough staff to do them. So I needed to really to track that information. I created an access database. Wanted all my colleagues to sort of, you know, use that and, I mean, I don't have to tell you how bad this is in the multi-user environment, right? So right. yeah. it, it was clear to me that this was not a good way to go. So I said, well, how do I do this now? How do I get to convince these people to, you know, have a SQL Server backend and some kind of front end?
1: Before you move on from the pain point, which is what you clearly laid out there, I, I got to tell you that... Uh, Having worked on medical record software Uh in the early 90s when I think we were on SQL 6 or even before 6.5, I think, and uh, in Access, we did the transition from Access to SQL, and I just remember just so much resistance from doctor's offices because they didn't trust the technology. And, you know, granted, the technology of the day, which was probably, what, VB5, VB4... BB five and Access and, and SQL Server. It you know, it wasn't it wasn't great. It was it was really good, but it wasn't rock solid. And I think maybe there's been a lot of uh, mistrust um, of of systems in general in the medical world because let's face it, this is this is life and death and nothing is more concrete and more trackable than papers in a huge wall of filing cabinets.
2: Yeah, that is that is very, very true. On the other hand, you know, we have been dabbling with Excel spreadsheets for a long time and uh, been using this. So we are, you know, we are sort of using these kind of office technologies and have been relying on that. And it's probably actually even worse to use them. You know, so let's say you're using an Excel spreadsheet and you have your patient information on that and you have somebody else you know, look at this and then they do something stupid and the columns are all mixed up and they sort yeah. of completely, different. it's like a nightmare. And right. I still see like students and fellows, you know, doing the small research project, that way that they put in you know, patient information that, and, and I'm trying to get them to say, listen, this is not the right, you know, way to go. This is, this is the wrong way. And we need to try to get to the 21st century here. And, 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 and you know, so so your show has really helped me understand that. But obviously, you know, the first thing I had to understand <laughs> was that there's a 3 tier, you know, type of you know, thing to do. So that you have to really separate things out you know, with a with a nice database back end and, and you know a front end and the middle tier where the logic lives because I also saw that other people have been trying to do these kind of things and put all the logic either, you know, either in the, in the database backend, uh, you know, our our DBAs have been doing that a lot, and or put it in the front end, in the UI. Uh, and, you know, first stuff, I had tried sort of with the .NET 2 era uh, when when you started or with .NET 2005, 2006, and it's all the same kind of mistake, and, and, and now we really have a different situation. Um, you know, I've been battling with Light Switch lately, and this is really something where I think, and you can correct me and I'm wrong, you know, but I think this is actually a very nice uh, uh, way to do things now, uh, to, to really bridge that gap between the developer and the content expert or the domain expert in trying to figure out how can we really leverage uh, these types of new architecture to really help our patients.
1: I couldn't agree more and I think you are probably the quintessential light switch audience because you're you're somebody who is a domain expert not a developer but you have enough knowledge do, having done access and scripting and all of that stuff to to understand what a what a data store is and what a database is and that you have to query it and that you have data coming in and reports going out and and really, you can focus on what it is that you're doing. Now, can I ask you something about your experiences with Light Switch? How did you find the learning curve?
2: Um so I try. I, I created, I had a, a need for a project. So I created a project. Uh, I'm an, you know, I'm a gastroenterologist, so I look in people's stomachs. I don't know, I go to details here, but so yeah. I <laughs> take little small specimens. And so the last thing that the VA hadn't done here was is, is a electronic submission system where we, you know, when we submit submit a patch specimen, little small a tissue sample, mm-hmm. I wanted, this to be nicely trackable. I wanted to have an application that can create a little barcode that can stick on my sample, uh, uh, bars. And, you know, so I thought, well, that, that's a good way. Let's, let's get this started. And it, it, it was really, um, not as easy as I thought. It, it was really nice. The first experience was really nice. So, the first experience was to say, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to set the relationship between the tables? You know, because it's a, it's a many, many to many relationship between a, you know, a patient and a provider. So that's already the first challenge. And, and LightSwitch made this really easy to create all the right table structure and, uh, you know, do CRUD operation in general. So that was really nice and easy. And, and so the problem started out when I needed to print something out of that. Because now we're talking about a silver light and printing and printing a barcode on a little sticker. Um, and and that's sort of the interface between uh, doing collaboration operation and then, then actually being able to then put this all on a sticker so that we can, you know, ship this away. That was actually much harder than I would have thought. You probably, you know, I think you've said it multiple times on the show, is this printing is just not something that comes out of the box or out of the yeah. silver light.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. And especially if you want to print with any degree of accuracy. That's why I, I've I've often ended up doing my own printing code in and writing it myself just because I have that level of, of control. But you know, for, for somebody like you, that's not an option. So what did you end up using a library to do printing or was there, is there any kind of way outside to get outside the box in, um, uh, as a non-developer in light switch or does it have to, do you have to pass it over to a developer?
2: Um, so I needed a little help and what I ended up, but I, but about 90% I could figure out. What I ended up doing was basically I, I, I had to run it um, on the desktop, you know, basically out of browser. I couldn't really run it in the browser mode. And then I had to just, uh, you know, spawn a, a browser window and then put all the data into a query string. And then I had to do a little bit of, you know, of JavaScript. I plugged in jQuery and did a little JavaScript. I, I could download this from the web, basically. I have a JavaScript library for generating the QR code. And that basically then, you know, just uh, uh, chops up that query string into these little bits of pieces and then sticks it into that uh, uh, QR code generator. And then, you know, this can be done on the fly and I can print it through a regular printing uh, command. Now, obviously, uh, you know, these vendors of these uh, printers, the barcode printers, they have their own sort of API sometimes. And I was not able to actually hook it up directly to their API. So that's... That's not where I can, you know, this is where my you know coding skills clearly clearly.
3: Right, end. but
1: that's clearly something that's outside of your domain, so right. that's what you'd hire you know, hire a developer to do that. Yeah.
2: But of course I'm now extremely I'm extremely stoked that, you know, I was I was actually watching all the tech ed videos on LightBridge and I I'm extremely uh, you know, sites uh, about that we will have now HTML coming down the pike.
3: Right, we're going to
2: have O data, which is, I think is also another really nice piece of uh, um, uh, functionality where we can say, well, we can create all sorts of little small projects. You know, within here within our medical center, where we can then expose that data to other small projects, and mm-hmm. with O data, that should. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that should really be something that is uh, much easier to do.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at telerik.com slash metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now, are you more inclined to write your own software with Light Switch than you are to purchase something off the shelf or to hire somebody else to do it?
2: Well, that is a very good question. Very often, obviously, if you buy something off the shelf, particularly in the medical field, it's going to be really expensive. So that's one thing. Now, if it then would do everything that you want it to do, that would be all right. But very often what you end up is that you have to do so much customization in the end that it's likely not worth it right. to buy that product. And then you're sort of stuck in that proprietary kind of uh, cycle. Because, sure. you, you know, every time something happens, you have to call them in and they charge you out of the nose. So I think from the perspective of complexity that we want to try to achieve I think we would be better off, and we'll see it probably down the road in three years or something, whether we succeeded, but we will be better off if we would, um, try it ourselves, you know, to do what we had done in the past with access, but we couldn't really do in a multi-user environment where we had roles and, and, uh, you know, where people, where we have much more granularity of access control and say, you know, this user, this nurse needs to see it, but, you know, shouldn't really write up and this, this user should change things and, Uh, So I think that's in so much more developed, and what's coming out of the box, you know, with uh, light switch, all the authentication and uh, authorization. I mean, that's just very, very nice to have. There's a lot of plumbing just provided right there.
1: I gotta admit, I'm I'm a little curious about some of the things in your bio not being in the medical field at all. But evidence-based medicine, what is that?
2: (laughs) You know, that's an interesting question because you know. When I was listening to Dotnet Watch and all the shows over the years, it it occurred to me that there are very many parallels, uh, in medicine in the past where we have, you know, very often sort of relied on expert opinion. So, you know, you bring the expert in and, oh, we went to medical school and we had all that training and so on. But, if you really look at it, you have to come up with a framework to say, how do we make a decision that uh, if we go that route, that this is better than going the other route? So, and, and, you know, listening to your show, I think you've been very often at that particular crossroad situation where you say, well, is Agile better right. than Waterfall? Uh, is uh, Link, you know, better yep. than, should you go to Entity Framework? I mean, there's, all these kind of things. I mean, partic- I'm particularly confused about OpenID and all of these. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Who isn't? <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> uh, so, so I, so, though in medicine, we have then decided to say, well, listen, we have to make this, we have to come up with something. And I've been part of a, a of an international working group where we have actually made a, a rating system for the evidence. When we give uh, uh, out advice, so let's say I work with the CDC, the CDC says, Uh, For example, we should we should screen everyone for hepatitis. For example, right? Then I will say to them, Well, are you sure? Should we really do that? And what is it based on? What is the evidence that it's based on? Should we just base it on expert opinion, or should we look at studies? Should we look at empirical evidence? And if we do, what are the rules? What are the levels? What are what is evidence that we
1: can trust? Yeah, you have to do a comparative analysis, a, a detailed analysis based on the evidence that you have. I mean, it's just, what you're talking about is, hey, let's use the scientific method to determine if this is a good idea or not. and, and Exactly. And that's, you know, something that we think has to be done by committee and by, you know, big... But no, it really doesn't. Just take a look at the right. evidence and make a decision.
2: Right, but what you have to have is a framework that you can all agree on, right? I mean... You know, when SP, you know, when they tried to package all these mortgage securities and they labeled them all A, quadruple A, I don't know what it was, right? right? And people believed it, right? Then, you know, then, you know, everything broke down when it turned out that it was wrong. And if you go travel and you have a four star hotel and you go and you find out that the rating system was flawed and everything falls apart. So mm-hmm. in medicine, we have tried to come up with good systems that actually reflect our confidence in that particular estimate that something is different when you do A versus B. Mm-hmm. And and very often I was thinking, you know, when, when I was listening to you guys discuss with your expert, that that would be a cool thing, too, because, you know, myself is not an expert, I cannot judge and, and say, well, I believe this guy or not, unless I'm presented with uh, a certain way of thinking about it, mm-hmm. you know? So for me, it was very difficult in the first years to say, "Uh, you know, what should I learn? <laughs> should I learn in sharp or maybe?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you're saying you came up with the idea for evidence based medicine based on listening to our show?
2: No the uh, the, the word evidence based medicine had was coined actually by somebody, Gordon Guy, that okay. I admire greatly, out of Canada. Out of McMaster, uh, into, uh, you know, in, in Hamilton. Uh, Score okay. one for
1: Richard. Yep. Huh.
2: Yep, that's right. And, uh, he coined that term in 1992, and, uh, it has really taken off uh, since then. And it okay. has changed a lot what we do just to emphasize that, yes, experience is important, and yes, we need experts, but these experts should actually User expertise to interpret the evidence, to say, what is it that makes it, uh, convincible that, uh, that, you know, uh, intervention A versus B or, you know, your approach A versus B is better and that we should do the one thing and not the other.
1: Well, you know, our favorite guests, um, Dr. Falk Eater, have always been the ones who lead us down those, uh, you know, way and consider cost benefit analysis. Things And instead of coming to a conclusion right away, give us the pros and cons of each tree in the decision. And um, th- those are my favorite discussions. And there's a couple people I can think of now. But, you know, unfortunately, in this business, um, I think most people tend to want to hear, always do this, never do that. And those are the people that usually pack the room. Uh, because they seem to have all the answers, and you know, I think this is a human issue. It's not necessarily a um, a programming or a medical issue. It really is. We we just want easy answers, and typically, when you go that route, you make more mistakes.
2: Right, and you know what? It's the same in medicine, yeah. and, and and to a certain degree, practice dictates that we need to package what we know in a way. That for most people they can understand that there's a certain situation where you should just do it. Right. Now that is usually then based on high quality evidence that we know that that particular route of action is actually better than the other. Mm-hmm. But we need to also make sure that if we are not sure about this, that we need to be open and transparent to the people that use our advice that we are not sure about it. And that's that's where, particularly in medicine, that's where some things uh, fall apart. So Uh, Unfortunately, we, the medical profession, often the the murkier the evidence gets, the more forcefully we are telling them to do something, so we don't we can avoid the discussion, and and that's wrong. And so we really need to then you know step back and say, listen, uh, this is the situation. I understand there's lots of uncertainty about that uh And uh, you know if you don't believe me, you know feel free get a second opinion, and uh, you know you'll find out that that we have to actually look for other things that can influence your decision. that could be values and preferences or other things that can come up Now for software development, you know that that could potentially also happen because then people learn yeah they've invested a lot of time just systems certain languages, although of course, I admire you guys saying, "Oh, you should just learn one language each year."
1: Oh, we don't say that. No, our guests say that. I, uh, I have, I have problem enough with the English language sometimes, but, um, no, yeah, I, uh, they, we've, we've been schooled certainly by people who, uh, are convinced and it, it's pretty easy to see how that learning another language helps you write better code in your own language because it gives you another perspective. I don't know if there are any parallels in medicine there.
2: Right. I mean, uh, sure. There, there. Yes. I mean, it, it is great to see that you can obviously, if you have learned the methodology of research and how you how you look at evidence, that you can come up with parallels and can solve these situations better. And particularly if you're cognizant of the factors that influence your decision of uh, you know how you should actually. Uh, what you should recommend to, to patients in terms of treatment and, and strategy. Um, you know, that, that is clearly something w- which we would call experience, but in the end, it should be informed, hopefully be informed by evidence that that would be the right way.
0: You know, the thing that I think is interesting here is that there's a real clear parallel that I think you've, you've hinted at it a couple of times here that, uh, experts, Tend to rely on their experience more than the evidence.
2: Yeah. Um, well, it depends on the. It depends on the expert. I've seen experts that are very humble and, and I definitely listen to people on your show, and that's the reason I like your show because you are you are handpicking them, um, and 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 they really are very thoughtful. They they know the evidence. They mm-hmm. they know that they couldn't just come Up with blanket statements, and they always say it depends.
3: <laughs> yes, yes, but it,
2: also, it depends. And I always have to elaborate because I mean, it, they're right, and then they explain why. And and then there are the experts, and unfortunately, we have this a lot also in medicine who are well, who, who may have a constant dementia. Put it plainly, and mm-hmm. it could be financial, it could be intellectual, uh, obviously, and 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 that's where it gets a little bit tricky, and uh, where you know where we don't know what are their motivation to say a certain thing out loud, because it could well be that they have some vested interest uh, that we are not completely aware
0: of. Right, and that that is a challenge to deal with occasionally that they're uh that is the worst kind of compromise to to uh, you know have a, a specifically a financial interest in something independent of the best intent of the listener or patient
1: but you know what what's great about this um about this profession is that we are inquisitive by nature and tend to be evidence based when it comes to our work because that's the only way we learn you know is by can it do this yes does it do that no Well, how fast does it do that? We can actually measure these things and look at them and see how effective they are. So, therefore, somebody who comes out to make a claim, it can be easily tested. So, I think there's less incentive to try to pull the wool over one's eyes.
2: Okay.
1: I I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, That's just my thought, anyway. Um, But, you know, you're going to have people who try, that's for sure.
2: Right. Uh, I I mean, you know, it's... It's obvious that uh, you know I cannot go as deep in in the area that you are you know. But within within medicine, uh, uh, it, it is a process. It's, it's clearly a process, and we are moving hopefully in the right direction. And, and, and one day we will probably know what do we what, what are the good questions that we need to ask to really dig deeper into stress tests certain ideas and, and hypotheses that we have. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have listened to you, you know, to your show and your, your guests when they say about, you know, code coverage or mm-hmm. they've said something about code execution time. And, 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 uh, and you, Richard, I mean, you're, you're working on, on optimization and, uh, and making things faster. And I think this is, this is very good. So you already have that metric. You already have that direct feedback. But sometimes we are talking more about general kind of approaches, where we would say, which general direction do we go? And for me, it's very hard. So, for example, I mean, you had a nice show on Oslo, right? I mean, not that I completely understood what they were talking about. but It sounded to me like there was sort of this domain language that maybe one day I, as a physician, can learn something that's very specific to what I do, and then we all are a happy family. Well, so that all went away. And you, maybe you
1: could tell me where it went. I was hoping you could tell us. Actually, <laughs> we, uh, I, you know, the, the the promise of Oslo was great, and to me, it never sort of got beyond um, uh, a way to input data into a database. Whereas, okay. you know, that's all fine and good, but I guess. They didn't really take it to its end, which was, okay, now that I have that data in there and I can put it in using natural language, how do I get stuff out of that? How do I make an engine that can parse that and actually do something with it? And we never got that far. Hey, Carl. Hey. It's that happy time again. Is it really? It absolutely is. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, which is everything Telerik makes in one box. To a lucky member of the wind of uh, the blah, 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 blah. to a lucky member of the Rocks fan club, of which there are thousands. And today's winner is Paul Jackson. Woohoo, congratulations, Paul. Golf clap for you. Golf clap from you. And if you don't know what we're talking about,
0: this is the .NET Rocks fan club, and you can be a member just by going onto the .NET Rocks site and clicking
1: on the link in the top right hand corner that says "Get Free Stuff." And of course, we give away a Tellerick DevCraft complete collection in every show. Thank you, Telerik. We also give away things as they come to us, like I don't know, tickets to events or mm-hmm. or things like that. And this year, this December, we're we're starting a trend. We're giving away five thousand dollars worth of technology to one lucky winner. And we we always like to ask our guests. Now we got in the habit of doing this. So, so Ingve, uh, if you had five thousand dollars to spend on technology that was <laughs> geek technology, not medical technology, let's say, what would you buy?
3: Well,
2: that's a very good question. And, and uh, you mentioned, I think uh, you know, Richard, you mentioned that before. A, you know, a surface
3: or mm-hmm. something
2: that way we can try things out. Uh, that would that would be just awesome. Uh, You know, I'm looking forward to maybe one day buy a connect, buy, you know, maybe have access to a surface and try to do certain things that we can just, you know, barely grasp right now. I mean, I, I think this will revolutionize medicine.
0: And I mean, that's a actually point. We've had a few folks on the show, I'm thinking Tim Huckabee especially, who have worked on projects using stuff for Connect, specifically for doctors, say, in surgery, so that they don't have to touch things but can still manipulate the machines. Is that normal in your practice these days? Is there a fair number of computers that are providing information to you while you're working? I wish.
2: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're, 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 don't get me wrong. There's a lot of computers, mm-hmm. but there's just nothing... Uh, right now, in the you know across the country, I would say in most hospitals that, that that is anything close to to utilizing uh, things like Kinect, where you say, well, let's enhance security, you know, so that if the if the person that is working on that computer walks away, I think Richard, you had said that you know that it sort of immediately sees that now we are at risk of divulging information, so you shut it down partially. I mean, things like that, or right. or this. Well, that move i think it was tech at the way he showed this this video where he could uh you know when I do endoscopies i am gloved up and I don't want to touch anything else so I could potentially look at the at the um uh at the the, the last endoscopic procedure report with all the pictures just by waving my hand would be great it
3: sure. would really be
2: great but I don't think that you know the mainstream is that far and I don't think that uh, We have ventured into that because we are still sort of grappling with uh, how do you do this in this environment that we have right now where everything is locked down so much. I mean, they're so afraid and they have HIPAA all over the place. Sure, yeah. yeah.
1: How many professions can say that if the software has a bug, you could lose your license? (laughs) You know, you could be fired.
2: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I have to deal with this every day. Mm-hmm. When we do these types of things, that we make sure that there's no concern. it's You know, it's behind the V A firewall. It's, it's highly on our computers, and it's really covers everything the way it should be done.
0: Now, patient information security is one piece of this, but you know, you know, Carl, you're walking into this, you might be fired. It's like, look, there's some software here that could kill people. You know, if you if that, that hand-waving software for pulling up their last report pulls up the wrong person's report and you start acting on things that aren't actually there, that's pretty darn serious. Well, you
1: know, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Yngwie, but I think that you have those kinds of issues of data accuracy no matter what you're using to interface it with. And, you know, a smart application will have lots of built-in checks. You know, like if you're going to use the Connect to pass x-rays around you know you want to have something on the x-ray that clearly identifies the name of the patient the you know the this and the that right there on it um
2: you're, you're absolutely you're right you're both very correct uh it could go either way and i think that there's there's lots of arguments to be made that we can actually make uh you know medicine safer that way i mean they're definitely already using barcoding so that You know, everybody who gets the medication uh, dispensed here, they have a little bracelet and, you know, before you dispense the medication that is actually packed, each little pill is packed in a little wrapper that has a barcode on it. You scan the patient's barcode and you you scan that pill and there's another layer uh, checking that this was actually the medication that's supposed to be dispensed to that patient. So you can put these additional levels in Obviously, there's always a user uh, involved, and the mistakes happen. And, and so you have to be sure that you have multiple layers, multiple, multiple layers. redundancies Checks and that bounces. actually kicks in.
0: So are the, the FDA-type regulations around software and hardware, are they essentially rational? Does it make sense? Or are they? I always hear that regulations are so far behind the technology that they're an incredible impediment
2: yeah i you know I'm not an expert in that mm-hmm. and but 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 I always wondered why the fDA would be involved in in approving certain uh software parts and uh, for the most part i mean we, it's I, I I'm sure that it's uh you know much more complicated than that, but for the most part obviously if you if you write a medical record or portions of that, that's not something the fDA would regulate but I, I could be wrong. They do regulate devices, obviously. So uh, when it comes down to glucose monitors and so on. So, uh, you know, it, it was very interesting to listen to some of the Scott Hanselman's, uh, uh, you know, pieces on him, you know, having diabetes, how he deals with us and what
0: has entails. For sure. But, you know, it also comes back to this basic issue, I thought, right at the beginning here, which is, you know, the, the concept of managing patient records and so forth. This is not a leading edge software problem. Like, what's the struggle? Why are we having such a hard time with this?
2: Well, uh, you know, so here's the, the traditional view on this. So the traditional view is, well, we are seeing patients, and so we're writing something down, and we just have to store what we wrote down. So we could just potentially just scan it and put it in a database. But that's not really good medicine. Good medicine is that you don't really just have free text, that you really... Say well, what are certain elements of our interaction with the patient? Right. For example, was the patient cured of his hepatitis C? For example, yes. Was he cured? And now you have that cure. Now, you know, if you just write it in the document, it's very hard to find. You know, I cannot push a button and say how many hepatitis C patients I've cured because it's all free text.
0: Right. Right. So a
2: good system really needs to now rethink the entire patient's physician relationship and how we actually deal with it so we are moving much more away now from the traditional way to just seeing patients to also taking care of patient populations to say how many HC patients do we have how many have we cured have we actually controlled the diabetes of these people uh, well or have we not controlled well right. so we are we're looking more on a on a population level and taking particularly in the VA obviously where we have a very nice closed system well, we can do all these things. We can track quality of the care, and we can do this all if we have granular, retrievable data. And very often, we don't have that because we're still stuck in this old system where we're sitting in front of the patient, we're just scribbling something down.
0: Right. But Now, now you're talking about evidence-based medicine again, like it's important exactly. or something. <laughs> right.
2: But it's also, obviously, it's also the dovetailing with with general research because you're learning so much when you look back and say, so how did we actually treat our last 100 patients and what happened with them? What are the downsides? What are the side effects? What are the things that didn't go so well?
0: Well, exactly. I mean, how do you get better if you can't actually look at the data in a way that shows good outcomes and bad outcomes and can measure up those different practices to say these are the things that made the difference and you actually could improve? Right. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed
1: Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component one net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component One. Smarter components for smarter developers.
0: Now, I have in my development experience run across a wondrous language for storing this information called HL7. <laughs>
2: Oh, my God. Yeah, that's one of the headaches where people trying to shove data from one thing to another. You know, it, it, it's, it's been amazing. If you go into some of the hospitals, right, you see big computers in the lab in the basement, right? And then there's one guy who takes the ticker take off, walks to the other terminal, and punches in the lab results so that the other physicians can see that. And then the physicians bring it up on the screen, and then they write it down again. And then they on send, the a piece of
1: paper. F- send it by fax, and then... <laughs> Email it to a translator who then makes a a recording and sends that to a transcriptionist. Right.
2: It's madness. So now there is like everywhere there's a computer. Right. They they just told me about the problem that the bed now includes the computers, and the the computer in a bed got infected with a virus. And it sits on the network because we want to know what the weight is of that patient in that bed, right? So... It didn't happen in the VA, but I, I I heard this and I was thinking, God, this has got to be really tough from a from an IT perspective. You know, you have to track each little chip sitting in a bed, sitting in a couch, sitting in a scale, sitting in a monitor here. It gets insane.
1: I have a a question for you to take this in a completely different direction: the problem yeah. of the rising costs of healthcare in America. Are are software developers more part of the solution or more part of the problem?
2: Oh, I I strongly believe that this would be a part of the solution. Um, I I really believe that we can save a lot of money if we can uh, really harness the data that we have. We are uh, data-rich information poor. We have a lot of data out there, but we cannot access the data in the way that's easy enough and that other people can, particularly frontline clinicians can do it and and, and, uh, and also administration. It, it, it's so hard sometimes because it's developed over time. So what we do, for example, here with all the data that we have, you know, we have to really put it into... We, we, we take the mum database and then this is a hierarchical database. I even don't know exactly how that's structured, but it gets then shoved into a, uh, into a SQL Server database on the back end, and obviously, there's lots of fields there are lots of things that can be done, and you have to really be very smart how you write these quotes, and then to figure out, what are we actually doing? Where are we duplicating a lot of the stuff that we do? And medicine, particularly in the United States, because it's so defensive, there's a lot of duplication. A patient sees somebody, uh, you know, a private practitioner, he's sends them to get an x-ray, and then it goes to the hospital and everything gets repeated. I mean, we right. are we are repeating and we are duplicating stuff. So technology, information technology would be essential to reduce that. Did, and, you know, the, it, the Institute of Medicine just, just, just recently came out with an estimate saying 30% of the health care expenditure can be saved.
1: And that's just from better computers. Does the term OLAP mean anything to you? O-L-A-P?
2: Uh, that has to do with some data uh, cubes or access right
3: yeah <laughs> it's an
1: essential form of storing data for for doing mining and yeah. uh, it, and and I just wonder if you know if this is if this is a if if medicine is really a data mining problem, Richard, what do you yeah, think about that?
0: I think one part of it is.
1: Finding trends, maybe?
0: Yeah, well, you know, uh, Dr. Avery's point there about, you know, this duplication of work because people aren't trusting data going from one source to the other, so they have to just keep redoing things is one part of waste. But then you get into this larger thing that we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, looking at the aggregate of outcomes to actually advance medicine forward. We're leaving incredibly valuable knowledge on hard drives we're not using to improve medicine. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. I mean, it's clear there are the multiple facets of where uh, where the savings could come from. And, and obviously, one is to have an integrated health system where you can exchange this information. So, as I mentioned earlier, you know, if a patient comes it's from a different city and you don't have the records, but there's a certain uh, urgency to doing these tests, you're going to repeat them all. Yeah. You know, if you have access to these tests, you can look at them and you can say, well, I trust this one, but I don't trust this one. So you could be much more selective to this and you Mm -hmm. will save a lot of money. Within the VA, we can
1: already do that. Do you think, think, and and this is just a purely medical issue, do you think that if uh, doctors had a budget for um, a procedure or an issue instead of being paid by the procedure, that that would be another place where incentives could go to work?
2: Absolutely, and the incentive system is just wrong. We we should not be incentivized. It's just doing more and more uh, is the right way to do it. So you're absolutely right that the that the medical community is working on understanding episodes of care better. To say this is there's a start and there's an end, and we should actually reimburse for an episode of care. Right much more than just to reimburse every little step ahead. Right. And, I mean, everybody's lived in the United States and, and got these bills. And, you know, it's almost impossible to understand. Right? We, would, we wouldn't go and, and, and drive our car into a shop and then get a bill for, well, this was the bill for looking at the car. This is the bill for jacking it up, and this is the bill for the tire. Right. I mean, right?
1: Yeah. Right. Here's the that, problem. Here's here. the solution. And, and, you know, here's how much we have to fix it. So that incentivizes the, the doctors to find the best procedures and to find the, the most efficient and the, the smartest ways to treat.
2: Right. And within, within the closed healthcare system, such as, such as the VA, for example, Kaiser, the same thing, you know, the incentives are much lower to, um, to do extra procedures. I mean I, I wouldn't repeat another procedure unless it's really indicated because I don't get paid more. But in the outside world obviously, you know, if a private practitioner sends it to you, you're not gonna say no. You're just gonna say, you know, just gonna do whatever they want to do, even if it's borderline indicated.
1: Right. Yep. Yeah, and that's just the way people are. They need incentives. I I, I didn't think it in terms of incentives so much until I, I read Freakonomics and I'm sort of hooked, you know. But anyway, I digress. I I just no, think that, it's wonderful that uh that somebody as um as vertical as you are in terms of IT is really interested in all of these broad topics. But uh do you, do you, where do you see yourself going in terms of software development? Do you do you want to develop s- systems that you can just use yourself or do you plan to um, do work for other people in this regard?
2: Well, you know, I am I, very excited that, uh, to, to, have, to, to try out Light Switch Now, for example. So, to have, um, you know, a system where most of the plumbing is done, where I can really try to focus and understand what is the part that really requires certain development skills. And then I would also be happy to learn these skills if, if it's not tedious. If it's not like, you know, trying to figure out a memory, uh, mapping and <laughs> manage memory. Right. I don't want to do this. And that's the reason I haven't really dabbled with iPhone or like, I like my iPhone, but if I have to do that, I'm going to kill myself. Ah. <laughs> but... So, so I'm very excited about that part to to really um, see how this moves forward, and, and you know it's very well possible that if we if that turns out to be a good way to do things more decentralized, uh, that maybe the VA is picking this up and saying you know this is what we should do. We should have people you know develop on certain technologies such as LightSwitch where there is a good three tier architecture and there's certain standards of exposing data and exposing business logic to other systems, and then see who comes up with the best system. You know, like doing a little app store, like, uh, like uh, you know, Apple for for healthcare, where you can say which is the best app. I don't believe that... The VA has gone the other route very often. They've said, oh, no, no, we have to all develop centrally. We have to have this application, you know, like a consent application before a procedure. This has to be developed centrally and then rolled out nationwide, and that's very cost-effective. In fact, I don't think it's cost-effective. No, it but again, I don't have the proof. But
0: We have this experience. We've been doing it for years now. It tends to make poor-quality software that frustrates efforts and generally drives folks away from it. They they circumvent it, and they continue to do their own things and make the situation worse, not better. Mm. Uh, I'm with you. We've learned as developers, you know, thinking in the larger architectural point of view, that good back-end infrastructure exposed in a reasonable way allows innovation on the front end to combine, to mash together technologies, to create things that are better than their individual parts.
2: I'm, I'm with you uh, that's, that's absolutely right.
1: When that sounds like a good place to stop, uh, doctor, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's always great to uh, it's always great to talk to somebody outside of our little world who, yeah. uh, who is affected by it. So thank you and thank you for all your work.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: And we'll see you next time on net rocks. Hey, thanks for listening and remember. PluralSight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. PluralSight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Quap Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft Development Technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net.